Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ali MC presents a brand new photography exhibition, Shot on the Road, an intimate yet confronting view of the forgotten parts of the world. Shot on the Road will be opening on Saturday, May 5 at the Fitzroy Library from 2 to 4pm. Shot on the Road is part of the 2018 Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and is supported by the City of Yarra, Prism Imaging and Brio Books. A 3CR supporter. Hi, this is Hugo the Poet. You're listening to 3CR and by doing that you're supporting Community Radio, an incredibly important institution in our times. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. It's Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, today... We're going to go over to Palestine. I've got a fascinating report from Max Bullenthal. (laughs) I've probably said that completely wrong. Uh, Max Blumenthal, who is an investigative reporter. This is a um, was put up on the cloud and directed. I was directed to this. It's. it's uh, Paul Thomas's interview with this uh, direct, uh, the, and it's a fascinating background to what's been going on in uh, Palestine. And uh, we've also got a uh, the first report from our new team member, uh, Fiona, who's uh, went down to the uh, Palestinian rally, uh, pro-Palestinian rally that was held. Uh, last weekend in response to what's going on over there. Uh, If it hadn't reached your radar, the uh, Israelis' uh, army shot and killed uh, demonstrators, uh, unarmed demonstrators, in front of of the world, in fact. No secrecy at all. So we're going to have a a look at this particular issue and if it doesn't bring tears to your eyes, you have probably got a steel heart. Uh, we're going to go on and uh, look at the universal basic income concept. Many people seem to think that it's uh, a great idea. Uh, in fact, some European country uh, greens uh, greens in different uh, greens parties in different European countries have actually put it in as part of its platform. And in fact, uh, it was just announced that uh, the greens here are pretty interested in it. Uh, but there, uh, at the Marxist conference, there was a very interesting presentation around uh, the uh, universal basic income, which I'll share with you, uh, because it goes through, teases it out, 
uh, it's a conversation about uh, the pros and the cons. It, it actually, uh, I had a suspicion about the cons, I must say. We're also going to talk about the right to strike. So, uh, big day. Uh, keep listening. One crop is as good as another As long as the cash keeps pouring in The wheels must never stop turning The machine must be obeyed The future has got to be fueled And there's a price to be paid Join Toxic Free Faulkner on Thursday the 19th of April at 7.30pm for a screening of The Green Chain, a New Zealand film about a sawmill worker's long battle to expose the impact that workplace toxins had on his community. Biochemist Sebastian Furness will also be speaking at the Faulkner Primary School, Corner McBride and Lawn Streets, Faulkner, on Thursday the 19th of April, 7.30pm. $15 waged, $5 unwaged, $20 solidarity and kids of course are free. All funds raised will support Toxic Free Faulkner's VCAT case to get the toxic site at 102 McBride Street cleaned up once and for all. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. Today I'm sitting down with Max Blumenthal investigative journalist and commentator on Israel and the struggle in Palestine. He's the author of the award-winning book Goliath and the recently published expose, The 51-Day War. Whereas on-the-ground reporting in Gaza in the aftermath of Operation Protective Edge documented the harrowing reality of Israel's war crimes. I wanted to find out what he discovered during his coverage of the war and how it relates to the current uprising in Palestine. Max, can you break down what's happening right now and what people are calling a third intifada? It doesn't fit within the parameters of what we know an intifada to be, which is a nationwide uprising directed by political factions. What we're seeing is a completely disorganized rebellion by a generation of youth who've grown up um, after the Oslo Accords, which laid the basis for a two-state solution and the U.S.-led peace process was established. Um, and they've grown up in that reality. It's a reality of separation, exclusion. Um, they've witnessed the destruction of the Palestinian grassroots. Um, all of the institutions of Palestinian life, especially in East Jerusalem, have been virtually eliminated. Um, in the West Bank, they've been folded into the PA and the NGO infrastructure. And they've seen very little opportunity or hope um, there. The occupation has deepened and tightened. They watched a 51-day assault on the Gaza Strip um, and felt helpless. Um, They've seen the Palestinian uh, de facto leadership in Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority led by Mahmoud Abbas, coordinate security with their occupier and sick their Palestinian forces on them, um, carrying out raids, for example, at Birzeit University. And so this generation has decided to act on its own. This has been building for a long time. Um, but now that this generation has come, come of age, um, they're lashing out at their occupier. They're going out and demonstrating at the friction points of occupation. So, for example, um, at the checkpoint at Beit El in Albire, outside Ramallah, there are regular demonstrations. They're throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails at heavily armed soldiers. Um, around Nablus, which is a site of settler terror, and especially in Hebron, where settlers, the most radical settlers, 
um, in all of Israel, Palestine are embedded in the old city and regularly terrorize and prey on Palestinians. Um, they are carrying out attacks. There are knife attacks inside the Green Line, um, which is a symbolic act. And what they're doing is they're sending a message that as long as we're occupied, there's going to be a price. You're not going to be safe, and you won't be normal. As Netanyahu said recently, we, will, we are destined to live by the sword. But in Tel Aviv and Haifa and all of the cities inside Israel's interior where most of the Jewish population lives, it will be like we're in Europe. Or as Ehud Barak, a former Israeli prime minister and defense minister, said, we'll be a villa in the jungle. And when, these, when young Palestinians enter the villa with knives or with rocks or whatever they have, um, they are reminding Israelis, you know, you're not in... You're not, you're not a villa in the jungle. You're the jungle in our villa. You're in the Middle East, and you can't just put up a wall and pretend we're not here. Why is the Al-Aqsa Mosque center to this political struggle? First of all, Jerusalem has been separated from the West Bank and Ramallah under the, uh, thanks to the Oslo Accords. And the Oslo Accords provided the basis for a separation regime. The separation regime was manifested in the separation wall which separates occupied East Jerusalem from the West Bank. The Israelis proceeded to destroy all of the key Palestinian institutions in East Jerusalem, like Orient House, which was supposed to be the future seat of a Palestinian government that would govern from the capital of East Jerusalem. That all moved to the other side of the wall, to Ramallah. And then every other institution proceeded to collapse. The only thing left was the Al-Aqsa Mosque as the symbol of Palestinian nationalism in Jerusalem. To me, it's much more about the Palestinian national struggle than about religion. But in Israeli society, you've seen in Jewish-Israeli society a development where a religious nationalist class has risen in power. Um, They're really reorienting society um, into a theocratic, dominionist direction. And for them, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is a symbol because it's the Temple Mount there were supposedly Jewish temples there 1,300 years ago, and they aimed to rebuild the temple as a symbol of the replacement of Israel as a state governed by civil law with a more theocratic, openly Jewish state, uh, what I would call JSIL, or the Jewish state in Israel and the Levant, the Knesset and all of, and many of the ministers in Netanyahu's government are religious nationalists. The pressure on Al-Aqsa increases and the pressure on Jerusalem increases and the conflict, such as it is, takes on a religious dimension and begins to resemble a clash of civilizations instead of a struggle over rights and land. The Al-Aqsa Mosque has been almost completely encircled by Israeli settlers and they've accomplished that through brute force, throwing Palestinians out of their home and replacing them with uh, religious ultranationalists. Uh, they've built tunnels under Al-Aqsa Mosque, which actually have uh, destabilized the infrastructural integrity of the old city of Jerusalem. And now they're beginning to prevent Palestinians from praying at Al-Aqsa for the first time so that uh, Jewish religious extremists can ascend and conduct their own kind of prayers. And so... All of these disruptions have destabilized, uh, have destabilized Jerusalem. And you have 300,000 Palestinians in Jerusalem living under occupation with constant pressure from settlers. They're 
living among the most extreme elements of Israeli society who are armed. They themselves are not armed. The youth have been you know, traumatized by this environment and they're lashing out and the friction point is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, and remember, Al-Aqsa Mosque was where the Second Intifada began when Ariel Sharon ascended with his surrounded by security forces and it led to a complete bloodbath. And uh, we're listening to Max Blumenthal, who's giving us some background to what's going on in uh, Palestine at the moment. Uh, And uh, you're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast. Let's continue with uh, further analysis. Outline the devastation that took place during last year's 51-day war. I immediately, as soon as I entered Gaza, went to Shujaia, which was... The, you, couldn't, you couldn't really call it a neighborhood. It's more like an entire city east of Gaza City that had been wiped off the map um, by Israeli artillery um, and pretty much every mode of destruction available to the Israelis. Every house I went to there, they weren't really houses, they were ruins of homes, and speaking to elderly women and entire families about having their family members summarily executed in front of them, interviewing paramedics who found a woman... 80-year-old woman in a chicken coop who had hid there for eight days, living off of chicken feed, um, pulling dead families, entire families out of homes and finding that they couldn't pull them out because their limbs would fall off and having to bring in bulldozers to bulldoze bodies into mass graves, interviewing the Rujela family about fleeing tank fire and leaving their severely uh, disabled daughter on the road in her wheelchair and then finding her in her wheelchair a week later riddled with bullets. Uh, These kind of stories were what I heard day after day. I mean, everywhere I went, I was walking through a real-life horror film, and this was the Palestinian experience in Gaza for 51 days. It was like uh, a sequel to the movie Saw. Um, How do you deal with that Uh, psychologically? That's the question we have to ask now because... The humanitarian situation is worse than it's ever been in history. Um, The United Nations uh, Relief Works Agency predicted that Gaza would be uninhabitable by 2020, and it's currently uninhabitable. People are trapped there. Most can't leave. Um, And who are the Jewish Israelis, the 300,000 who participated in this operation? How do they think? Netanyahu was re-elected in a surprise to a lot of Americans after Operation Protective Edge, you have to go into a very right-wing, eliminationist mindset in order to justify what you did, and it's Netanyahu who's able to cater to that. Just the amount of violence I witnessed was only the beginning of a nightmare that's continuing um, through the present. The Gaza Strip has... 80% 80 of the residents of the Gaza Strip, 72 to 80% are refugees, um... So it's, 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 it's a warehouse for surplus humans. And for the first time, you actually are seeing, for example, a wave of child suicides. Um, I had uh, I interviewed the father of Salem Shamali, who is um, killed on camera. Guys, this one. The hand. He was looking for his wounded cousin, and he was killed. Allah. It was reported on um, by international news, um, and the family, it really affected the family to find out, you know, our son 
was killed and we found out because someone emailed us the video of his killing and we only knew it was him because we recognized the sound of his screams so Salem's father told me that his other sons are and children are making amanat um, which is a unique term that doesn't really have a clear English translation but it means like their last dying wishes um, so the violence um, of course is on you know it's a physical violence, but there's a psychological component to it. The Israelis threatened to bomb the main hospital, the Al-Najjar hospital in Rafah, and so the, everyone had to pour out of the hospital, wounded people, people missing limbs, uh, and the entire medical staff, and the only place left was the uh, Kuwaiti hospital, which is actually a 20-bed OBGYN and geriatric clinic in the center of town that's completely unequipped for this kind of... Um, disaster. And the doctor I met there, Samir Holmes, told me that he was treating amputees on the floor, um, that his own medical staff was coming in dead, uh, and that the carnage got so bad that he had to order ice cream coolers from local shops to store the corpses of infants. Um, And this image that is widely available of four infants in white death shrouds in an ice cream cooler, I think is iconic. It's the image that distills the entire sensibility of Israeli society at this point and how little value they place on Palestinian life. So the government's going to great lengths to crush resistance there. Uh, The latest measure is the 20-year prison sentence for anyone throwing a stone. Max, talk about the significance of stones in Palestine and why you think this law was passed. In this case, this law was passed by the Israeli parliament, a very extreme law, um, and members of the Labour Party and the opposition supported it. It wasn't just right-wingers who were determined to throw young people in jail for almost their entire adult life for throwing a stone. It It shows how threatened... Um, Israeli society is by the smallest, most uh, minuscule iterations of Palestinian resistance, even symbolic resistance like stones. Um, And now it's become a symbol uh, of resistance and and, and telling Israelis that they're not welcome. Why are you throwing rocks at a soldier who's who's wearing a Kevlar vest and is protected against 7.62 millimeter live rounds? Um, The the Israelis... um, are responding now with unprecedented measures. I went to the hospital in Ramallah in July and uh, interviewed um, a doctor who told me that he was treating dozens of gunshot wounds to the legs um, and that Israel had a shoot-to-cripple policy. And he provided me with documentation um, which pretty much showed that soldiers were cracking down on demonstrations with live fire to the legs. Not only that, but some of the bullets were what, what Palestinians call tonton bullets or dum-dum bullets, which are expanding rounds. Um, so they'll bounce around inside your limbs and expand and really cripple you for life. Um, the Israeli... Um, th- this bill to jail stone throwers for 20 years is com- complements another measure put into place Um, by the Israeli military and police, which allows even members of the Israeli police to shoot demonstrators with 22 caliber rounds from Ruger rifles. The 22 caliber rounds are less likely to kill. 
they're more likely to cripple, um, they shatter bones, they often bounce around inside your body. This is standard practice now. Standard practice to shoot demonstrators with live weapons. People might be surprised to learn that Netanyahu is actually not the most right-wing right. Israeli government, um, that it's actually just gotten more and more right-wing over the last decade. Benjamin Netanyahu, I, I've been saying for the last two years, exists at the hollow center of Israeli politics. Um, you know, I talked about the generation of Palestinian youth, the post-Oslo generation, and how they've developed, but within Israeli society there's been a parallel development um, with the post-Oslo generation that's extremely radical, sees no hope for you know, a, a two-state solution or a peace process. Um, their approach to the Palestinians is that there's no partner for peace and that they only understand force. Um, this is a generation that's adopted a very uh, strongly um, Jewish identity um, and a belligerent Jewish identity as opposed to an, the identity of Israel's founding generation, which was based around a concept of Israeli nationalism, in, which was racist, but which allowed for some place for Palestinians or Arabs. The, the kind of sensibility and identity this generation has adopted leaves no place for anyone who's a non-Jew. Um, and this generation is embodied by the current justice minister, Ayelet Shaked. Um, that bill we talked about to punish stone throwers for 20 years, that was her baby. Um, she ushered it through the Knesset. She's young. Uh, I think she's, you know, she's our age. Um, she's very telegenic. Um, she's very popular in Israeli society. She's not a settler. She comes from a core Israeli city. Um, in many ways, she's kind of a carpetbagger. And she is genocidal in her approach to Palestinians. In fact, she called for genocide during Operation Protective Edge for exterminating Palestinian mothers to prevent them from giving birth to little snakes. She's in charge of the justice ministry. And you, you look at the direction of Israeli society. You just look at the polls from Israeli Democracy Institute that show that a majority of youth state their refusal to sit in a classroom with an Arab or a non-Jew. That a majority of youth uh, favor a kind of one-state apartheid solution. Um, in two, 2011, in this poll, a plurality of Israelis stated their support for placing Arab citizens of the state of Israel in internment camps during wartime. Uh, Three-quarters of Israelis in a recent poll reported by Times of, the Times of Israel, three-quarters of religious nationalist Israelis, um, declared their support for the full ethnic cleansing of Palestinian citizens of Israel, the 20% of Israel who are Palestinian citizens. And they, 80% said that they boycott Arab businesses. So you, you look at the direction of Israeli society and you have to conclude that there's no hope for change from within, um, that those of us on the outside who want to see a different outcome than perpetual conflict can't work from inside Israeli society. We don't have a place for convincing people. There has to be pressure from the outside. And the pressure has to start here because it's Washington and the U.S. government that has funded radicalization in Israel. They've paid for this whole project because every time Israel builds settlements, every time they give money to the settlers, every time the education ministry brings kids to Hebron to see the settlements, every time that 
they teach kinder, they decide to teach kindergartners about the Holocaust and scare kindergartners into into it in, into an authoritarian mindset. And every time they assault Gaza and get as much time as they want, the U.S. is there to pay for the whole project and to rearm them. And so they're rewarding radicalism in Jewish-Israeli society, and that's really ultimately why this trend is continuing. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. That was taken from a protest march in the city held last Saturday, 7th of April, where hundreds of supporters gathered and took to the streets in solidarity with the Palestinians and their ongoing struggle for freedom. 2018 marks 70 years since the Palestinian dispossession in 1948. To mark this event, Palestinians have been gathering every every Friday along the Gaza Strip since the end of March engaging in a peaceful and non-violent demonstration, which is, which is known as the Great March of Return. They are demanding their return to their ancestral homes, now in Israel. The Israeli state has responded to these peaceful and non-violent demonstrations with brutal, calculated violence, killing to date 29 innocent, unarmed Palestinians. We will listen to one of the speakers at the protest rally held last Saturday. Her name is Sarah Kutub and she's a local um, Palestinian student based in Melbourne. Um, just a warning regarding the audio of the speech. It is a uh, quite loud and distorted, but we did feel that the speech was important enough to broadcast. Massacring Gaza, Israeli forces open fire on Palestinians, killing 29, wounding as many as 1,700. On the second day of April 2018, Palestinian blood was began to shed yet again. A headline foreign to our mainstream media, but not to our ears. Why did these men, women, children and the elderly die? They were murdered for the very reason we are here today. They were murdered for protesting. They were murdered for upholding a basic right to freedom of speech. Imagine this happened in our backyard. Better yet, imagine that it happened here today. The outcry of the world would be unmeasurable. It makes me so angry that the place you reside determines the value of your life as a human being. Assalamu alaikum. May peace and blessings be upon you. My name is Sarah Khattab. I'm a 22-year-old Palestinian woman who refuses to let go of her roots, who refuses to keep silent in the face of injustice. My eyes long to see the place which my heart holds so dear. I have never physically been to Palestine, a right taken away from me 70 years ago. 
However, I will not allow this to stop me from fighting for my ancestors' right of return. Israel, do you think that you have the capacity to wipe a culture, a tradition, and a language which is so strong? You may have used your guns and your bombs to drive out my great-grandparents from their home. What you refuse to acknowledge is that their memory and their struggle lives on through countless generations. The land mass and the oceans in between me and my heritage do not act as a barrier but a driving force. Israel's justification of the Palestinian occupation has no intelligent or legal basis now and in history, not even in their own religion. Since 1948, the Israeli settler movement has been hell-bent on the ethnic cleansing of the indigenous Palestinians in their historic homeland. Enough is enough. The shooting down of protesters is always wrong. The shooting down of innocent civilians is always wrong. The slaughter of children is always wrong. We know that it is wrong, yet the world remains silent. I do not know which is worse, the silence or the violence. All human beings are our brothers and sisters. Their current peaceful protest is noble and brave, for they march knowing they may be shot. The state of Israel holds two million Palestinians in their open-air prison, that is Gaza, denying them the basic right the basic necessities of life. For the next six weeks, they will be making a historic stand in peaceful protest. We in global civil society must stand with them. Free, free Palestine! 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 Free, free Gaza! must be garnered so the Palestinians are victorious. Israel must stop its open gun policy at the borders, otherwise it is only a matter of time before more people more people have been gunned down by live ammunition. When I say people, I mean an actual person like me and like you. Someone who has a family who is not just a mere statistic. We are witnessing a crime against humanity unfolding before our very eyes. This type of sniper war on Gaza is unprecedented and calls for a huge wave of worldwide opposition. When I began writing this speech, the death toll was 18 in number. In a matter of 24 hours, I've had to keep adjusting it accordingly. An apple fell to the ground and Newton discovered gravity. Thousands and thousands of Palestinians have fallen and no one has discovered humanity. I see seas of humans, but little humanity. What's wrong with the world? Whatever happened to the values of humanity? Why 
what happened to the fairness and the equality. These new days are strange. Perhaps the world is insane. I am a person who carries hope. Palestine will be free. God is great and his plan greater. It is our duty to stand for justice and condemn injustice. Is this not the only way we can facilitate change against governments who oppress? The power is with the people. I believe in the people. I urge you all to continue supporting the Palestinian cause we are so far removed from their suffering. It is the least that we can offer the thousands of Palestinian innocent civilians who have fallen in the pursuit of honouring their heritage. To my brothers and sisters in Gaza, I'm sorry that the only thing I can offer you is my voice. I promise to use my voice and my privilege to continue chanting the truth of your reality. Thank you. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. You might be interested in something that's coming up on Tuesday. Uh, well, actually, in the morning, there's a grand uh, delegates meeting down at uh, Melbourne Town Hall to discuss a whole range of issues, including the right to strike. Uh, we're going to be talking about the right to strike later in the program. Uh, so that's a pretty momentous event, 10 o'clock at uh, the Melbourne Town Hall. Obviously, it's kicking off what's uh, being billed as uh, a, lo- uh, a, a range of actions which are going to be applying pressure about the rules need to be changed. There's going to be a, a mass rally across the country on May the 9th. Uh, so keep your eyes out for that information. But uh, on Tuesday, April the 17th at 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, that's level 5407 Swanston Street, uh, that's Dru- Druid House across the road from uh, RMIT. And there is an elevator, so you don't have to uh, walk up the stairs. Uh, there's going to be a live cross to a as wing Aziz, who's a Kurdish solidarity activist. She's the editor of the Middle Eastern Feminist blog site. Uh, There's going to be a video link from Kobane, and uh, David Holmes is going to have a chat with her, and uh, there's going to be audience, and you could be there too. It's a a by-donation event. Uh, Fascinating to get a live link across to uh, uh, Kurdish... uh, um, space, uh, the Turkish invasion and occupation of Afrin, one of the three liberated cantons of the Democratic Federation of Nor- Northern Syria. Very interesting stuff. Uh, we're going to move on to uh, the universal basic income uh, concept. Now, as I said uh, at the Marxist conference, there was a very interesting uh, chat about the universal basic income because uh, on the face of it, you you would think that uh, perhaps uh, this might be a strategy for uh, creating equality. Uh, listen up. 
So it's not every day that a proposal unites sections of the socialist left with Silicon Valley tech billionaires and the libertarian right. Uh, but the Universal Basic Income, or UBI, or Basic Income, whatever you want to call it, is one such proposal. So simply put, basic income means that every citizen receives a regular cash payment from the government, regardless of whether they are unemployed uh, or not, whether they are rich and poor, and so rich or poor, and so on. So to be really clear on what I mean, um, basic income differs from unemployment benefits like we have in Australia in two key respects. So one, it doesn't come with any obligations. So you don't need to prove to Centrelink that you're looking for work, attend pointless meetings, or jump through any other hoops. And it should go without saying that socialists obviously support return, um, getting rid of these uh, paternalistic demands on the unemployed. Um, and then the second aspect of it is that if you work or if you own a business, you continue to receive the basic income in addition to your wages or profits. This is the case whether you're a childcare worker or a billionaire. The basic income is literally meant to be universal and unconditional. So according to the proponents of the basic income, we are fast heading towards a future where driverless cars and robots will make human labour obsolete and millions will be thrown on the unemployment scrap heap. But, according to them, there's a silver lining. As unemployment rises, the production of material goods will increase dramatically. Work, um, they argue, should become optional. Instead of condemning people to poverty and misery, everyone can share in the increased production through receiving an unconditional payment. Those who choose to work for some extra cash can do so, while the rest of us can spend our time on artistic pursuits and leisure. Um, its proponents argue a lot of things that we could probably agree with, uh, that everyone should have the right to eat, regardless of whether they work, that poverty is not the result of the moral failings of the poor, but of economic conditions. They point to trials that prove that people don't only work if they're um, forced to through by threats of destitution. And they point out that the rich already effectively receive a basic income, their returns on their capital investments, which they get regardless of whether they do any useful labour or not. <clears throat> And finally, as well, there are many forms of productive social activity like uh, childcare and aged care in the home that aren't paid. Um, and the UBI is undoubtedly gaining in support. So um, in Finland, uh, they're currently trialling a version of it. Switzerland had a, um, a referendum about it a couple of years ago, and it has majority support among under-35s there. It's now um, party policy for a lot of Greens parties across Europe, uh, and its supporters on the left now extend to Paul Mason, uh, former Greek finance minister Yanis uh, Varoufakis, and even Noam Chomsky kind of threw in a few lines of support for it. Um, now, on the surface, the universal basic income might sound like the socialist utopia we've been arguing for all weekend. But one thing that should give us pause is the enthusiastic support that the basic income has received from some pretty unsavoury characters. This includes members of the capitalist class like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg and Richard Branson. It also includes members of the hard libertarian right. And these groups see basic income as a way to attack the welfare state and replace it with a cash payment. As we'll see, the current trial in Finland does exactly that, with a basic income being introduced as part of an austerity package that slashes social spending. Left-wing supporters of basic income, on the other hand, largely see it as a more realistic road to socialism, or post-capitalism, they usually call it. Um, the capitalist road to communism is how one supporter put it. Um, <clears throat> but as I'm going to argue, basic income is neither a road to socialism nor um, certainly not a realistic one. Um, a basic income that would be affordable to the capitalist class would simply not cover basic living expenses. One one that did cover basic living expenses would be so costly that it would uh, take a monumental struggle against capitalism to achieve it. 
But most importantly, by leaving the power structures of capitalism intact, um, fun most fundamentally, the boss's ownership of industry, even a generous basic income would fail to liberate workers. But before I go into that, I just do want to talk about some of the economic arguments that underpin the arguments for a basic income, because I think they're um, important. So both right-wing and left-wing supporters of the basic income assume that increasing automation, such as um, robots, driverless cars, and so on, are going to lead us to a future of permanently high unemployment. So Elon Musk and the other tech billionaires view this as a problem because they think that there'll be millions of unemployed people with pitchforks and torches um, and who um, won't be able to buy their stuff, um, is basically what they think. Uh, and the left-wing supporters of the UBI um, think this is a problem, obviously, because it'll lead to mass unemployment and misery. Um, but also because automation, along with Uber, casualisation, other forms of precarious employment, um, they believe are permanently weakening working class organisation, leaving unions and strikes behind as relics of the past. And since there's no point uh, fighting the inevitable march of technology, they argue, we may as well embrace it. And for both, they see uh, the introduction of a basic income as the solution to the problem. So um, Musk and Zuckerberg want to throw us some of the crumbs from their profits so we don't overthrow them. And Yanis Varoufakis uh, and others think that a basic income will strengthen workers' organisation or even serve, uh, as I mentioned before, as a transition to some kind of socialist society. But I think these economic assumptions are wrong. The long-anticipated replacement of people by robots is not going to happen. Every new technology, from the hand loom to the iPhone, uh, has thrown people on the unemployment scrap heap. But it's also created new jobs in the production uh, and the maintenance of the new technology. Uh, it's created new expectations, uh, wants and needs, and so on. You think of the internet and all sorts of things today. Um, so ultimately, unless we get into science fiction territory with sentient robots doing everything, uh, there's always going to be plenty of jobs uh, that robots can't do. Um, Capitalism also does not favour labour-saving technology for its own sake. New technology is researched and implemented if it's more profitable, not simply if it's more efficient. So, for instance, manufacturing industries in the 1990s um, profited not by introducing labour-saving technology, but by moving operations to countries with low wages. Um, massive amounts of investment today go into unproductive things uh, like advertising and speculation because they're, more, they're actually more profitable a lot of the time than investing in technology. And automation itself can also reduce labour costs. So by increasing unemployment, uh, it can put downward pressure on labour. And by lowering the cost of production of consumer goods, it can reduce the cost of providing the same worker with a given, a given standard of living. So it reduces the wages bill for the boss. As for the weakening of union organisation and militancy, I think that's a lot more to do with the strategies of the union movement than changes in the economy. So long as workers produce the profits that keep capitalism going, they have the power to stop work and bring the system to a halt. So, for instance, automation on the docks has drastically reduced the number of workers by orders of magnitude, um, from a mass of people who literally would lift goods on and off the ships, in WA they called them the lumpers because they, they lumped goods on and off, um, to like a very small number of people who operate cranes and you know, pick up colossally large uh, shipping containers. But that small group of crane operators actually still has the power to tie up millions of dollars in profits. So with that argument out of the way, I wanted to talk a bit about the libertarian right-wing proposals for a basic income. So basically what the right wants is to see a low-income basic income uh, fund directly funded by the complete and utter abolition of the welfare state. So one right-wing UBI supporter, Charles Murray, wrote... The first rule is that basic guaranteed income has to replace everything else. It's not an add-on. There's no more food stamps, 
no more Medicaid, you just go down the whole list, none of that's left. The government gives money, other human needs are dealt with by the community, I think that's great. Yeah, um, I don't. Um, for the free marketeers, it's also optional whether the basic income is even high enough to, um, to keep people alive. Uh, it's meant to be limited to the amount that they can save from abolishing the welfare state. And this free market wet dream actually has a precedent in a proposal by the fathers of neoliberalism, uh, Friedman and Hayek. So they had a dystopic idea in which the very poor, instead of um, paying tax, would receive tax, um, uh, which they called a negative income tax, which would sort of provide a floor below which incomes couldn't fall. But the catch was that this meagre sum would be paid for by the abolition of state-funded healthcare, education and so on. Now, obviously, anyone on the left would oppose a proposal like this, but I do think it's worth talking about because a variation of this libertarian model is something to look out for from governments. It's the most likely type of um, basic income that we would see from uh, governments in our age of austerity. And so with that in mind, I want to turn to the Finland UBI trial, which demonstrates exactly that. So last year, 2,000 people on unemployment benefits in Finland were randomly selected for this trial. They will put on a 560 euro a month payment. Now, 560 euros a month is not much. It's just over a third of the poverty line in Finland. It's not really a living wage in any way. Um, these people had no obligations to look for work or jump through other hoops, and their payment would not be taken away uh, if they found work. So it's meant to kind of mimic the basic income. Uh, this trial is being carried out by the right-wing austerity government of the Centre Party, which has overseen huge cuts to Finland's social services. The stated goal of the trial is to, and I quote, promote employment by incentivising people to accept low-paying and low-productivity jobs. And the scheme is being funded, obviously, by the Centre Party's continuing cuts to social services. Uh, additionally, the trial is um, unlikely to ever become a true basic income, and it will probably, at most, replace Finland's current unemployment benefits scheme. Uh, so it was originally going to include low-paid workers, um, but in its final form it was just limited to the unemployed, and obviously it's just about um, getting them to accept a shitty job. Uh, and, but it gets even worse than that. So if this model did actually replace Finland's unemployment benefit scheme, it would be a pay cut for most unemployed workers in Finland. Um, Finland actually has a relatively generous unemployment scheme that's pegged to how much you earn, uh, you were earning when you were working. And this trial was only carried out on people who hadn't worked before, so we're on the, the lowest amount. So if it were actually extended, it would be a pay cut for most people. Um, <clears throat> so, but despite all of the, these terrible problems with it and the fact that it's obviously part of an austerity agenda. The Finland trial has received widespread praise and most notably from the centre-left. Um, so the Guardian has run a ton of articles uh, lauding it and they've made much of reports that those on the trial reported lower levels of stress and greater freedom to pursue, to pursue entrepreneurial projects, which I suppose is the Guardian's end goal. Um, uh, but I think this doesn't tell us anything about whether the scheme would be a good thing if it were extended beyond the 2,000 participants. Uh, obviously, if you're on unemployment benefits and then you get the same amount but you don't have to look for um, work or do anything else, you would be less stressed. That goes without saying. But I doubt whether that would be the case for people taking a pay cut or who had their essential services cut. Um, <clears throat> okay, so now I want to look at the supporters of the basic income on the left. Obviously, the left supporters of the basic income don't wish to destroy the welfare state. Um, rather, or one of the, the models of it anyway, the most common one that I've come across, is that they see it as a more realistic road to socialism, the capitalist road to communism. 
Since it leaves the core structures of capitalism intact, bosses control over the means of production and so on, it's supposedly a more achievable goal than seizing the means of production, strikes, revolutions and all that difficult stuff. But on the other hand, since it will supposedly free workers from being forced to uh, work for a boss, um, it will, according to the UBI advocates, strengthen their industrial power, improve living standards, and ultimately liberate them by allowing them to exit oppressive, exploitative relations with the boss. Now, for a basic income to deliver on any of these promises, at the very least, it has to be high enough to deliver a bare subsistence income. But the central problem for those who see basic income as the realistic, easy road to socialism uh, is that a basic income high enough to cover basic living expenses would be so immensely costly, there'd be no way to introduce it without a colossal challenge to capitalism, if not overthrowing it outright. Uh, the closer it gets to the celebrated realism, the less it would deliver a better life for anyone, and vice versa. So I'll give a, a couple of examples of studies that show this. So uh, French economist uh, Jan Moulier Boutang proposes a basic income of 1,100 euros a month for each citizen uh, without the loss of other entitlements. And this is a bit above the poverty line in France. Um, so this would cost $871 billion, or, um, sorry, billion um, euro, or 35% of France's GDP in extra tax revenue. Now, 35% of GDP is a lot of money. So for comparison, the entire Australian government's budget is 25% of GDP. Um, so you're looking at expropriating phenomenal amounts of wealth if you wanted to introduce a decent basic income. Similarly, a study in the American Socialist Journal Catalyst estimated the cost of a $15,000 a year basic income for adults and half that for children. Um, and it's debatable whether this would cover basic living expenses, um, but for the sake of argument, they assume that it will. Um, assuming other things like that effective controls are put in place to prevent capital flight, um, they estimate a cost of at least 20% of America's GDP in extra tax revenue. So I want to use another example to put this in perspective. It's well known that America's military budget is colossal and totally dwarfs that of any other country in the world. China comes second with about a third of America's military budget. But even America's military budget amounts to only 3.5% of GDP. So if you abolished America's military, um, even that wouldn't come close to making up the, the difference that you would need to fund a basic income at a feasible level. You'd need to raise phenomenal amounts of money. So David Zamora, uh, sorry, Daniel Zamora, writing in Jacobin, writes, the power relations needed to establish this level of UBI would constitute an exit from capitalism, pure and simple, rendering depictions of UBI as a means of social transformation nonsense. And I, I think he exaggerates a bit, but I do think that basically any talk of the introduction of a UBI as a transition out of capitalism or as a measure to strengthen workers against their bosses gets things backwards. There would be no way to introduce a livable basic income short of a serious struggle against capitalism from an already powerful and organised working class. Um, so having seen the kind of um, difficulties involved, many people on the left have then flipped the other way um, in the search for a realistic basic income and proposed really, really crap levels of support. Um, and these proposals are usually kind of raised as like um, more a reform that workers should fight for within capitalism than a transition out of it. <clears throat> um, these are all too low to meet basic needs and workers' lives would be drastically improved uh, more if the same amount of money were spent elsewhere. So Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity, Brecky team listener, when I'm feeling just a bit insecure, 
no, no, let's be honest, very, very insecure after the Minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash Up the Workers, declared she would destroy our protection, our security, through US of the UN, of the US of the world train killers, good liberty, freedom and democracy loving train killers, the good guys who stand proudly between us and train killer disaster from bad, bad train killers, the bad guys, throw US of train killers' bases out of True Blue Aussie and close important protections like Pine Gap, that critical piece of US of soil devoted to world peace, and reclaim the piece of land, thereby threatening the peace across the globe. For Julie firmly declared True Blue Aussie was opposed to any country establishing train killer bases in other countries in the Asia-Pacific region. How can the Pacific be Pacific if we throw our great protector out? Yet that's what Julie said. We oppose any country establishing bases in the Asia-Pacific. Just when we face terrifying real threats of chemical warfare from evil Russia and evil China and evil Syria, the evil government, not the good, good Syrians we support, forcing, forcing US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor to fight for peace by fighting, forced to send in the bombs and the train killer arsenal, send in the Marines, something the US of just loathes but knows is the price of being the good guy of the good guys. And Donald attacked his predecessor for telegraphing bombings and other peacekeeping assaults forced on the US of. And then this week, Donald telegraphed bombings and other peacekeeping assaults, telegraphed as a twit. And then, being the great commander-in-chief, and we're sure no one would have mentioned, maybe that was a mistake. Who wants to hear, you're fired? After Donald twitted, maybe the US of wouldn't, maybe the US of wouldn't, showing what a brilliant military train killer strategist the commander-in-chief is, comparable with the great tactician Winston Churchill others at Gallipoli. And at least Julie said True Blue Aussie would obey, or, uh, sorry, sorry, support any bombings and other peacekeeping assaults as long as they were proportional. She didn't say to what. And the US of would know who had chemical weapons because it flogs most of them. Similar to mission accomplished in then evil Iraq 15 years ago with just a little bit of mopping up ever since. Mission accomplished being getting rid of the weapons of mass destruction the US of equally unequivocally knew were there. And the nuclear weapons it knew were there. And prevented Iraq invading the whole good guy's world. Because they asked the obvious question, where's all the stuff we sold them? And our insecurity compounded by the threat of power blackouts for our ultra-expensive electricity. As goody-goodies who think the planet should come before profit want to take good, good, clean coal from the energy mix. As the Minister for Monash Fossils don't knock the Monash fossils. They determine our energy policy. The Minister for Monash Fossils, Josh Frydem Icebergs, who knows profit will save the planet, seeks a balance, attacking zealots. The extreme ideologues on both sides of the energy debate, so unless people are proposing we renationalise the system and foot the bill... Hang on, we need a short break here just to think that one through. OK, anyway, unless lower prices, higher reliability and lower emissions cannot be achieved through the lens of ideology, but rather through markets operating effectively.
good point because there's nothing even remotely ideological about believing in the market. All it takes is a massive leap of faith. Like, even more exciting, Josh guaranteed his national fossil energy guarantee will guarantee coal will be in the mix until at least 2070, or until the end of human existence, whichever comes first. And to Frankie's bona fides, Josh called on the big non-ideological energy behemoths to lower their prices. Please? 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 And coal behemoth Glen rotten to the core following an eight-month lockout of its lazy, avaricious workers up at Oakey North, replacing them with good workers who just want to go to work. We can't call them scabs because calling people scabs is now illegal. Following, cause locking workers out is legal, whereas strikes are criminal. We know that. Forcing the evil locked out workers back by threatening to take everything off them says the industrial relations laws are too loaded toward unions and workers. And as told big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and the team, they must change the law to make it fairer for the caring business class. So an example of balance would be making you locking them out illegal or conversely making strikes by them legal, we ask when rotten to the core. Can't repeat their answer, listener, on radio, but it's fair to say it seems that wasn't what they had in mind. Meanwhile, Malcolm pointed out there was a significant difference between his predecessor tidy a bit more for the bosses, dropping 30 in a row, and Malcolm dropping 30 in a row as he goes for the outright record. Let me assure you, Malcolm has no intention of challenging Malcolm. Lord Rupert, Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist in his typical in-depth political analysis, talked about the left being opposed to Tiny. So far, so good, except the left, he told us, was the left of the caring business class party. The left, when no one can find the left in the socialist party, let alone that lot. And the most left of the loony caring business class left, he wrote, was Malcolm himself. According to the Troubler Wazzy Capitalist Review, the Monash Forum Coal lot list Malcolm's stand on renewable energy, refugees and the Republic as examples of his out-of-control leftism. And we can all see the result of Malcolm's out-of-control stand on renewable energy and refugees and the Republic. Imagine what those policies would be like if he wasn't out of control. Speaking of out of control, as speculation whirls about Malcolm, the one argument for keeping him there to continue doing nothing while boasting about jobs and growth, jobs and growth, is the risk he might be replaced by the Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats and our security, Constable Peter Duffer. Not that we've got anything against Pete, but what would the rest of the world think when they see that vacuous skull? He's their uh, bigger supremo? Still, maybe our insecurity about being hit with chemical weapons is a bit misplaced, given we've got Constable Duffer looking after our security. But the obvious question then must be, who have we got to protect us from Constable Duffer? Totally unrelated, but the University of Melbourne has joined those bodies testing autonomous buses which roar along with no one driving, and I thought must be attached to the politics department, because obviously it's a microscopic example of government, except the buses hopefully aren't roaring along aimlessly. Bringing us to a multi-choice little quiz listener. 
tough choice, but who said life was meant to be easy? Okay, imagine we're listening to the ABC Radio National Brecky Show and that in-depth interviewer Fran says, after 7.30, we'll be talking to Julie Bashup, the workers, or talking to Matthias Rotten Tuber, or Scuttle them more life son, or Christopher Payne in the, or Chris Bowen the Capital, or, well, we get the picture. Do we immediately, A, switch to 3CR Brecky, B, switch to 3CR Brecky, or C, switch to 3CR Brecky? Answer next week. And warning, be careful. There's only one correct answer. Periodic redistribution of parliamentary seats, and it's proposed to change Karangamite, one of the few seats with an Indigenous title, to Cox, C-O-X, named after some woman who did some good establishment deeds or other. And C, the current caring business class party member for Karangamite, plans to object, saying she doesn't wish to be known as the member for Cox. <laughs> she must have a filthy mind. The proposed redistribution led to speculation that Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition would change his seat, leading to some confusion, until I realised they meant parliamentary seat, as I thought, what's new? He's always changing his position based on the message he gets as he licks his finger and holds it up in the air. Back to poor Donald forced to attack that probe into alleged Russian interference in getting him, getting him elected as an attack on our country. Bad, bad. A witch hunt. Bad, bad. After the probe raided um, Donald's lawyer's office, a good man, leading to revised speculation Donald might give the investigator the you're fired bit, but we bet there wouldn't be one person in remand who wouldn't wish she or he could just sack her, his investigator, thereby declaring not guilty. But how cruel some people can be to poor Donald. Take John Viniello, real name, president of the US of National Fire Sprinkler Association. They must have an association for everything. Anyway, after that fire which killed a resident in Trample the Workers' Tower, John claimed, and who would believe this listener, claimed Donald in the 1990s had lobbied officials not to require sprinklers because they were too expensive. And they let him get away with it. Well, perhaps there was a little expense involved, but as if the leader of the free world would put people's lives at risk to save money. Right now, he may or may not put people's lives at risk in Syria, but that's to save lives. Well, other than the ones which aren't saved. Finally, back on coal and resources and insecurity, we can be sure the people of Colombia are feeling more secure because BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge pollution subsidiary, South 32, is helping extract its resources. Just a pity it's lost its licence because of ludicrous claims its waste emissions are seriously affecting neighbouring communities. It's got to be a setup because a proud True Blue Aussie corporate would never rob or pollute. Good morning. Located in the heart of Thornbury, the Islamic Museum of Australia showcases the cultural and artistic heritage of Australian Muslims. Don't miss our latest youth-based exhibition, Ways to be Muslim, and immerse yourself in a series of photographic portraits and unique personal narratives. This exhibition is hosted in partnership with Muslim Collective and the Victorian State Government and is showing until July 8th. Visit the museum website for more information. The Islamic Museum of Australia is a 3CR supporter.
Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, and you're Sol- Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're having a yarn now with Don Sutherland. How are you, Don? I'm very well, thanks, Annie, and how are you and all your listeners? It's great to catch up with you all again. Yes, that's right, and uh, we're talking about uh, the right to strike, and uh, and this is an opportune moment to talk about it since they've called uh, a monster delegates meeting down in Melbourne, and I'm assuming in other cities, uh, for Tuesday uh, to talk about uh, the rules are broken. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history of uh, strike law? Well, a little bit, yes. Um, the uh, Fundamentally, uh, in, in Australia, there has never, ever been a legal right to strike until the very limited uh, right to strike that was introduced uh, to go with the enterprise bargaining regime that was introduced by Keating's Labor government in 1993. Now, uh, that did not stop workers in the history of Australia from taking industrial action. And uh, in other words, the, the taking of industrial action historically has always been an act of defiance against the proscriptions against it in Australian industrial law. However, uh, we've got to counterbalance that with the arrangements that were in place leading up to, I think it was 1996, when the industrial law that was created with the formation of the Commonwealth Parliament uh, said that the any new law formed by the Parliament, uh, had to be done under the constitutional provision of Section 5135 that enabled, the guts of it, enabled workers and employers both to create an industrial dispute that could then be heard in the conciliation and or arbitration process associated with the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. Now, this is sort of interesting, isn't it? Because what you're really saying is there's no such thing as the right to strike because the, uh, uh, the nothing is given to workers unless it's through struggle and that uh, actually the inherited laws from England were based on the Master Servants Act and actually it was illegal for, for anybody to damage the property and the... Uh, uh, well-being, basically, of the of the boss class. Well, the Master Servant Act was, um, and I can't recall the details, but it was uh, repealed in at least some Australian states around the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. And although it was a factor in proscribing, legal, making it illegal uh, to strike, it wasn't the it wasn't the only factor. There were a range of things. In fact, the right to strike, the formal right to strike, started in 1993, as I said, with the introduction of enterprise bargaining. Ah, yes. And, and, uh, but it is a very limited right that uh, was reinforced. In other words, it was not made more democratic. It was made... Uh, uh, it was uh, the prescriptions and the limitations on that right to strike were, in a sense, reproduced during the negotiations for what we now know as the Fair Work Act in the period 2007 to 2009. 
And uh, that, of course, those negotiations were supervised by Julia Gillard and did very little to enable workers to exercise more control in the bargaining process through uh, the so-called right to strike. There is no right to strike outside that framework. Yeah, yeah, because what what I was going to say is that from from a worker's point of view, from a, you know, logical point of view, you'd kind of think that, you know, you've got a dispute or something's been done that uh, you you need to get attention because that was it a a lot of the time, that a strike would be held to get the actual bosses to take the issue to the Arbitration Commission. This is preceding the situation we've got now. So, and then there would be things like, yeah? Yeah. Uh, You're right right onto it, except for one very important point, and that is that under the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission power and, and, and the law and therefore the statute from there, both employers and workers could create a dispute ah. that would then go to the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. Now, there were all sorts of um, uh, very ordinary aspects to that from the point of view of workers that we'd have to go to right now. But fundamentally, fundamentally, the that arrangement enabled workers to be the agents of their own destiny by creating disputes. Now, those disputes... The creation of a dispute, broadly speaking, took two forms. It could be a real dispute, as in a strike, withdrawal of labour, or uh, uh, or or the threat, the threat of it, mm. or it could be a paper dispute in which either the employer or the union notified the other of a disagreement about an issue, and it would end up in the Commission for Conciliation and Arbitration. Now, here's the key point of what you just said, because it's very useful. The the creation of a dispute could be about any matter that arose in the workplace. Well, not quite, but in other words, if the employer did something that was unfair or breached the award or breached any formal agreement that had been arrived at or a breached a previous decision of the, of the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission, then the workers could create a dispute about it. And that that was an important aspect of union growth. Mm. Because okay. workers themselves were initiating the logic, their own logic, for being members of a union. Yep. And then there are other applications of the right to strike, of course, or or the capacity to strike, of course, and they are in the context of bargaining, whether it's over an award or an agreement, Mm. or it might be a political dispute. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, no, with with, with the advance of managerialism, and uh, that's what the EBA, I mean, yes, it's a... a, um, a, a, symbol effectively of uh, neoliberalism but it's about managerialism it's taking a it, it's in uh, taking away that uh, workers agency doesn't it uh, exactly yes and especially their collective agency their combination uh, together to take effective action the second general point about the right to strike or um, the capacity to strike is that it is the countervailing power 
to the unfettered right of employers to withdraw or reassign their capital. Now, the capital arises is entirely developed originally from the labour of the workers. That's where capital comes from. Yep. It is appropriated and becomes owned by the employer. And on that basis, the essence of the capital system is that the employer can withdraw that capital and put it somewhere else. Yes. And where they put it might be productive or it might be overseas or it might be in an investment banking arrangement where as sort of fictitious capital, it goes on earning income for them without doing anything positive for the society. Well, a so sort of a, a basic income for rich people. Yes. And if employers, and, and this is the essence of capitalism, if they control capital and are able to withdraw it, then the countervailing power to that is uh, the capacity or right to strike. In fact... For workers to withdraw their labour. In fact, that's one of the reasons given for why Paul Keating um, opened, uh, uh, floated the dollar, you know, made... uh, So it stopped the local capitalists from sitting on their hands and then uh, causing political uh, breakdown. I think, yes, that's one aspect of it. I think there were... I mean, that's one of the arguments behind that. But anyway, moving right along, because this is important, John Howard, he took all this stuff out of uh, it being a good good little uh, capitalist, I guess, uh, or actually... Agent of the employers? Yeah. (laughs) Agent of evil. Um, (laughs) There's a whole lot of things running through my mind there. he took it from the arbitration uh, and conciliation arrangements to uh, corporate uh, to corporate uh, law, uh, and, yes. and and as a result, Sorry. and as a result, actually, uh, it gives it some sort of statutory implications, doesn't it? Well, I think, yeah, the jury is out on this. But, ah, right. Um, uh, but you're right. Uh, one of the things that Howard did which, firstly, Gillard, uh, Gillard's leadership in uh, industrial relations in 2007 and 9 did not correct, and which I notice, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, I stand to be corrected if I'm not, the Change the Rules campaign does not seek to shift the operation of any new Fair Work Act back to the conciliation and arbitration power. It's willing, it seems to me, to be willing to accept that that is an aspect of the law that they do not wish to change. If I'm wrong, I'm very happy to No, that's interesting because I was having a chat with someone the other day and they said that having read the Change the Rules campaign material, it's a bit short on detail. Um, Yes, well, the detail's now beginning to flow, of course, because we had this week, we had two things actually earlier this week. We had one of the most effective employer organisations, the Australian Industry Group's CEO, one Innes Wilcox. Oh, that man, that man. The man that used to be the uh, press officer for Alexander Downer. <laughs> well, you got me there. That's that's interesting. He was the chief that. of staff for him, said, yeah. It says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but he made a speech on behalf of the employers to uh, a secretive 
uh, industrial relations employer group at the Brisbane Club in 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 Brisbane, in which he laid out the uh, Australian Industry Group's uh, proposals to make the, the uh, a new Fair Work Act even worse. Of course, of course, now, you'd expect that. Yeah, but of course, associated with that, a day or two later, um, uh, Sally McManus, for speaking uh, for uh, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, their affiliate unions, in effect, announced the ACTU blueprint to give Australia a pay rise. Yep. Now, I think it's important. I think that this matter, it's only just come out, and so we're still asking questions about this. I think it's a step forward, a very important one. Uh, But if the focus of the changes that are in this blueprint is about wages, and inside that there are some very important uh, improvements to workers' rights, but it is not primarily, it is not about other aspects of the ways in which workers are exploited that are dealt with in other proposals that the ACTU is making. So the proposal, these five, I think it's five or six uh, points in the uh, blueprint are focused upon uh, wages and the necessary rights, that new rights that workers need in order to uh, tackle their wages uh, problem. Um, the the thing that every the employers have got their knickers in a knot, if I can use that expression, uh, about is uh, is two things mainly. Firstly, the uh, uh, the shift from uh, the status, uh, uh, the, the uh, increase in the status of uh, bargaining across uh, uh, employers, either award-based bargaining or uh, industry groups of employers in production chains or industry groupings. In other words, the uh, what this does, of course, is take competition out of bargaining for wages, rights, and conditions. Good, which is what they, which I mean, this is what uh, people seem to have overlooked. Maybe they haven't, but I, uh, this is one of the most dangerous things that this the present LMP. Uh, incarnation it federally has done, which is actually base everything to do with uh, um, uh, labour law around the Productivity Commission's attitudes yeah. towards uh, uh, um, labour law, you know, uh, rights, uh, workers' rights. The, uh, the improvements in, in labour law for workers are necessary and are worth fighting for. But mixed up in that, there has to be a much higher level of defiance than there is at the moment. Yeah. And I think that uh, this is where I think the concern that some people have that there is still not enough detail in what the ACTU is proposing is understandable. But I think also that it is perhaps... We've got some months to go before we get to the pointy end of negotiations about what any uh, future law would look like. 
Because uh, uh, well, hold, hold on, uh, I just want uh, um, Don. I just want to remind listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and it, I'm Annie, and we're talking to Don Sutherland. And that you got to the point of a question I uh, wanted to ask, which is a very interesting thing that uh, the CFMEU guys from the Concrete Gang mentioned was that the ACTU has now said that if they get. Uh, a change of government and the change of the rules that they're not going to just stop with the change of government that you know this is an ongoing campaign and that it's for workers rights not just to get a labor government in because that's where you're getting getting to isn't it that uh, the uh, bringing the la- labor government will bring employers into being part of uh, diluting uh, any workers rights in whatever new form the Fair Work Act takes. Am I yes, right? Well, Am I jumping uh, the gun there? No, no, I think, I think that's, that's my understanding as well, uh, that there are, uh, and I believe, I believe Sally McManus is saying this, that uh, the intention of the ACTU uh, is to, in other words, the affiliate unions, is to... Uh, achieve whatever they can if there is a new Labor government with some changes, but to not let that uh, be the end of it all, because inevitably there will be com- compromises. That's what they're well, saying yeah. now. Now, and therefore, the compromises will mean that whatever changes occur will still be inadequate. They won't go far enough, and therefore the campaign has to proceed in a new way. Now, there are two things about that. Firstly, uh, well, there are three. Firstly, the lev- all of this is happening in the context of uh, very low union density. And that problem needs to be uh, uh, tackled more effectively than most unions are doing in order for a post-ALP campaign to be fully effective. The second thing is that there, I am pretty certain that there are affiliates in the ACTU who will not necessarily be fair dinkum about a post-ALP government continuing campaign. That problem can only be tackled by, uh, in the first instance, the middle layers of uh, union activists, that's organisers, union delegates, active members, stepping up and putting the pressure within those unions so that those union leaderships get dragged, if necessary, kicking and screaming into a post-ALP government campaign. Uh, the, uh, the third aspect of that is that uh, we should not on the basis of knowing that in the likelihood, in the possibility of a Labor government, the employers will be very busy and the ALP's form is it will be amenable to the employers to bring the employers formally, as Gillard did, into the process of designing the new rules. Now, that must mean that it is far too early for any union leader or activist to be talking about a compromise 
demands in regards to wages, conditions and rights, and particularly in how the Fair Work Act might be changed uh, in those regards. So uh, we are at a very interesting point. The big thing that's happening right now is at last an escalation in two things. Firstly, we have a round, as you said, of the ACT has called it as well, 12 days of action coming up starting in late April and going into around the 12th of May of union delegate meetings in most states and regional uh, meetings associated with May Day. In in terms of what I've seen so far from the ACTU, that activity is going to be focused upon the blueprint, the six points in the blueprint that are primarily about wages. But I notice, and this is a note of criticism from me, uh, that the the six-point blueprint (laughs) does not say anything about the annual wage review, which is the specific form or the specific focus for the ACTU's demands that would have, that if successful, would begin the reversal of wages decline and the reversal of inequality. Mm. I don't personally understand that. I don't understand why the days of action that are coming forward cannot be focused upon the Fair Work Commission's current consideration. Well, I'll tell you what I think, John. What I think is this. I think they're running a campaign. Now, uh, a campaign work is... uh, uh, enters into the framework of uh, pr- pu- public promotion and it yeah. has a particular uh, or- organic, animalistic sort of uh, reality which is not necess- runs parallel to the real world. <laughs> and so it has to take into account uh, anything that might be thrown at it as it develops a... Uh, a groundswell. That's what they're aiming for. A groundswell. That's well, what... I think that's pretty. I think that's a very uh, credible uh, way of dealing with the point of May. But it, I think that it would be very good if there could be more questions and discussion about that. Um, a few bit, a, a few more nuts and bolts. You reckon? Um, well, <laughs> I think your point. I think your point is quite is quite valid. That you know we. Where are we in the overall strategy? And the overall, I think it's true that there does need to be a lot more education and conscious raising, consciousness raising about all of these issues deeper into the ranks of working people. Uh, it's not reaching enough, although there are literally hundreds of thousands of working people who are really very yeah. frustrated with the way in which they're treated. Yeah, really bad. Far more than there are members of unions. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, uh, I mean, we're coming to the end of our discussion. And um, when I said what I said, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying I think that yeah. is what they're, they're doing. I mean, I'm just putting it on the table. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's, as I say, I think, I think you know, you, you, you put it quite well, actually. And I think that... Um, you know, there is this tension between how um, how militantly, if you like, to, to focus uh, the situation at the moment on the um, the national wage review, um, 
I mean, because you see, what if they just lose it? We might finish with just a bit of information about that. Take a few seconds. Um, You know, or how how much to sort of keep keep the whole situation as broad as possible. I think, you know, there is a good discussion to be had there in the middle levels of the movement. Um, just on the annual wage review, where it's up to is that um, uh, the, uh, the, the the major parties participating in the annual wage review have put in their first submissions and now the second stage where uh, they are able to uh, write counter-submissions in response to their reading of what the other uh, parties have put in. So all the employer organisations, or not all, but several of the employer organisations have said what they don't like about the ACTU submission. Yep. And the ACTU has, again, done a very, very good job, although I haven't read it uh, absolutely thoroughly to be able to discuss it in detail, uh, a very good response to what the employer submissions have been. Well, you and know. the next stage is that it goes to, on 4th of May is the deadline for the the ACT and the employers to say what they wish to do in regard to the face-to-face consultations, as they're called, yeah. uh, and um, uh, those final consultations will occur in on the 15th to the 16th of May. Yeah, well, we have to finish there because we're right up to the edge. Yep. But I'll, I'll have to say that uh, our, our mates at The Australian have told us that the ACTU are calling for a 70-style IR regime. Um, yes, well, uh, I, I've read that, and um, <laughs> uh, the, the the big the, the, that's nonsense. Of course, it's not a seventy style. IR anyway, well, we have to stop, Don. We the literally... reasons that you pointed out that the the new laws are under the corporation's power, not the conciliation. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Australian. Uh, thanks for talking to us. All the very best to everybody. Bye. <laughs> This is for Palestine, Ramallah, West Bank, Gaza. This is for the child that is searching for an answer. Wish I could take it We have to go now. Uh, as I said, it's the end of the show. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, we went to Palestine. We looked at the universal basic income and we looked at the right to strike. I'll talk to you next week. Palestine. While we listen to tunes made by ignorant fools Israel blocked the UN from delivering food They bring in the troops and you won't even glimpse of the news They make money off the products that we're quick to consume And it's not simply a question of differing views Forget emotions, this is facts, what I spit is the truth Makes no difference if you're a Christian or if you're a Jew They're just people living in different conditions to you They still die when you bomb their schools Mosques and hospitals, it's not because of rockets Please God, can you stop this all? I'm not related to the strangers on the TV, but I relate, cause those strangers could have been me, words can never ever explain the raw tragedy, it's not a war, they're just murdering more rapidly, and we are automatically supporting pure savagery, imagine how you feel if this was your family. Palestine, free, free, 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 Palestine, free, free,
this stand remains in my heart forever We stand for peace, times of war We shan't surrender, remember It didn't start in this dark December Every coin is a bullet if you're Marks and Spencer And when you're sipping Coca-Cola That's another pistol in the holster of them soulless soldiers You say you know about the Zionist lobby But you put money in their pocket when you're buying their coffee Talking about revolution sitting in Starbucks In fact, 